Well, thank you to our musicians uh, for their just leading us and their faithfulness and consistency in uh, aiding our worship in song. Uh, make sure if you see uh, Keandra or Julia, you just uh, rejoice with them and uh, even just thank them for giving their testimonies. Uh, that was that was sweet to hear. It's always sweet to hear what the Lord uh, has done in bringing new life to people. So. Um, so thank them for taking the time to write that out and share with us. Over the last week or so, uh, personally, I've been reading a book about leadership, as I do from time to time. And this is not a Christian book, but it's called Start With Why. And uh, the whole point of the book is that to have a successful business or to lead people effectively, it's not enough to just tell them what to do. It's not enough to tell them how to do it. To really inspire people and make them dream big and pursue a goal, you have to tell them why they're doing what they're doing. And that's really the starting point in this book. And the author's not a believer, um, and, but it's, it's really a helpful look into how people think and um, how, you know, how people choose to operate in life. And we really do appreciate it when uh, we understand why something is happening. So this morning, we've already had two baptisms, and we're going to welcome some new members into the body here. And so I want to try to explain to you why we're doing that this morning. Both baptism and church membership are practices that churches do. Uh, We've done here at Woodhaven, welcoming new members in, baptizing people. And sometimes we take those things for granted. They're just sort of these rituals that the church does, and we don't really think too much beyond just the initial how they're done or what is happening, and we don't think back to the why and why these things are taking place. So I want to spend a couple of minutes starting and asking and answering that question. It's a fundamental question, why? Why do we do baptism, and why are the folks that are joining this morning choosing to join the church body here at Woodhaven? So each of those questions, that's going to make up our time together this morning, and then we'll welcome in the new members. But I want to start with those two baptisms. Why have they been baptized this morning, and why, why do we do that? And I'm going to give you three reasons for each of these. Why baptism? Why membership? Why we practice these things within the church body, all right? So... Why baptism? Let's start there. First of all, to obey. This is why we do it. So here at Woodhaven, we believe in the ordinance of baptism by immersion for believers. Baptism by immersion for believers because we want to obey Christ's example and we want to obey his command. Both of those go into this. Let's talk about his example first and then we'll get to his command for baptism. Now, you know, in the gospel accounts, Jesus was baptized. And I want to show you one of those accounts and just talk through that a little bit. So turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be flipping around a bit this morning. There's no shame if you need the table of contents. It's all good. So use it. That's what it's there for. Matthew chapter 3. And just read a short account of Christ's baptism here in verses 13 through 17. This is at the very beginning of his ministry. This is how he comes into ministry here in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So John the Baptist has been doing these baptisms out in the wilderness in the Jordan River. And if you look back and you read further back in Matthew or the other Gospels about John's baptism, it says that he was doing a baptism of confession of sin and repentance from sin. Okay? So with that in mind, you come here, and there's a reason that Matthew records this little back-and-forth conversation between Jesus and John, because John's like, wait a minute, you don't need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. Jesus doesn't need to confess any sins in order to to be baptized. There's no sin that's a part of his life. And so that's why he says what he says in verse 15. Look back there. Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Christ's mission on earth was to bring the righteousness of God to mankind. I mean, that's what he was going after. It was to reconcile sinful man to a righteous and holy God. And so mankind needed righteousness that we do not have on our own. And Jesus came to do that by obeying the Father, by submitting to what the Father had for him, to his will. And so baptism here shows that Jesus was submitting to the Father's will and that he was identifying with sinful mankind. That he was in solidarity with us and he would represent us and take our sins upon himself. And this is the first hint of that, really, in his ministry. Even though he had no sin, he would identify with those who did have sin, as 2 Corinthians describes it. And you see how the Father responds in verse 17. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God the Father is pleased with his Son, and therefore, because God is pleased with his Son, you and I receive the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. We receive that. It is credited to our account when we believe, when we repent and believe in him. And when that happens, you're united with him by faith, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So we're baptized to follow Christ's example. There, We want to be like him. I think Julia referenced that. But we're also baptized because it's commanded of the church and of those who would follow Christ. You see this pattern throughout the book of Acts, and it's because of what is said at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. We've read this passage so many times, and that's good. We need to keep reading it over and over again. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So we've talked about this passage before, but remember, the heart of this passage, there's one command given here, and it's to make disciples. How do you make disciples? Well, there are three supporting actions that we do in order to make disciples. We go, we baptize, and we teach. And so we're fulfilling this command when we baptize people who have expressed faith in Christ and who have come to him. And so baptism really does play a key role in this mission, the Great Commission of making disciples. This is the initiation point in your life as a disciple. 
It's not salvation, but it shows the reality of that. And so Christ commanded this. And that brings us to our second point. I already alluded to it, but it shows the reality of our salvation. This is why baptism? To obey Christ's command and example. And then also we baptize in order to symbolize. To symbolize. This is important when it comes to baptism. What's a symbol? A symbol is a mark, a sign, or a word, or a practice that represents something else. It represents a, an idea. It could represent a country, a group of people. But a sign represents something else, sort of encapsulates one aspect of, of some idea or some group, some nation. I mean, the American flag is the obvious symbol, right? It's a symbol of our country, but it also can be a symbol of certain ideals that we hold dear. It's in a, a symbol of certain cultural commitments or even of people. The American flag symbolizes, represents something else when it is displayed. And so when we talk about baptism being a symbol, Jesus gave the church two ordinances or two symbols. And we're to practice these symbols because they represent their outward practices that represent an inner reality. So these ordinances are showing that something happened on the inside. They're representing that. And their baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances that Christ gave to his church. Now, we've discussed the Lord's Supper before. We've talked about this um, a while ago. But the Lord's Supper is an outward demonstration of an inward reality. How? How does it work like that? Well, in the Lord's Supper, we, we eat and we drink. We take in symbols, signs that represent the body and blood of Christ. And it shows that we're continually trusting in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We're partaking of that as atonement on our behalf for our sins. I mean, food and drink, physical food and drink are necessary for the sustaining of physical life. And Christ's body and blood are necessary for the sustaining of spiritual life. For the beginning and the sustaining of spiritual life. And so when we practice the Lord's Supper, we're coming together as a group of believers and we're saying through this practice that we identify, we need the body and blood of Jesus Christ for our spiritual life, to sustain spiritual life. So that's how the Lord's Supper is a symbol, an outward sign of an inward reality. But baptism is similar. How does baptism, how is it a symbol of an inner reality? Well, I want you to think about what happens at the moment of your salvation. What both Julia and Kay described this morning. When you come from darkness to light and you're saved, what happens? Well, the New Testament tells us that to be saved, we repent of our sins. We place our faith. We turn from sin and turn to Christ. It's the same motion, turning away from sin. I don't want sin anymore. I want Christ and I need his work and I rest on his work, not my own goodness, not my works, not my own ability because I don't have any. I need him. And so I turn from my own righteousness, my own sin to him, and I rest on him. And when that happens, you are united with Jesus Christ. You are joined to him. Now, we've talked about union with Christ before, but this is such a significant part of salvation. I mean, I would describe this union with Christ. It's like the railway station where every aspect of salvation leads. 
You're justified in order to be united with Jesus Christ, joined to him. Every other benefit of salvation comes to you and I because we're united with Jesus Christ. Now, when you're baptized, that's a symbol, it's a sign of the inner reality that you have been united with Christ. How, how does that work? You're immersed in the water, you're baptized, put under the water, completely covered in the water. You go down into it, are covered with it, and the going down into the water, you heard me say this morning, you're buried in the likeness of his death, and you're raised to walk in newness of life. What baptism shows is that you have died with Jesus to your sin. He took your sin upon himself. You have been united to him through his victory on the cross. Now, you, your sin has been wiped away. It put, was put on him, and you are not responsible for it anymore. And then you come out of the water to show that now you will walk in newness of life. You have a new heart, and you have new desires, and you want different things. And there's a new course, a new pattern of living that will be true of you. Not perfectly, of course. But this is now your road and where you're aimed toward. It's toward Christ. And so baptism shows, symbolizes that reality. And so both Kay and Julia were saying, this is what is true of me. I have been united with Jesus Christ. He has taken my sin and he has given me new life. And I rejoice in that. Listen to Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized, immersed into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's an objective reality, if you're a believer, that is true of you. You have died to your own desires and your sin, and you have been raised with Christ to now walk in newness of life. And our responsibility, the overflow of that, is now to live that out. And Romans goes on to tell us how to live that out and what that looks like. And so baptism is a public picture or display of this reality. It symbolizes that. And that brings us to the third reason to practice baptism, to profess. So we obey, we symbolize, and we profess. I just said baptism is a public picture or symbol of an inner reality. It's done before people as a public identification of this reality. So this morning, these two young women declared to you verbally. They read their testimony. They said, this is what has happened to me. So there was a verbal affirmation of that, and then there was a symbolic affirmation of that publicly, that they are united with Christ. They've died to their sins, and they've been raised to new life. Now, Once you have been united with Christ, think about the implications of that for a second. You are joined to Christ. In a crude way, you can almost say you are on his team now. And he takes care of everything. Death to sin, life, newness of life. He takes care of all of it. You have been united with him. But one of the major implications of that union is that now... It's not just that you're united to him. Now you and I are united to one another because of our union with him. We're all connected to Christ now. And so there's an objective reality of our fellowship that we have with one another. We are in communion with one another because we're all in communion with Christ. We are members of Christ's body. And since 
We're all members of Christ's body. We are members of one another. And that brings us to the second part of our morning this morning, and that's church membership. Why baptism? And then why membership? Why are these folks coming for formal membership? Why are they joining the church officially and formally this morning? I want to give you three reasons why they are joining the church. Now, they may not, they may not be able to articulate all three of these things right off the bat now, but this is what's behind the desire to join, and this is why the church body is so significant and so important. Let me, let me walk you through these. Okay, whoops. First one there, affirmation. So the church body here at Woodhaven and the people who are formally joining this morning are affirming something. Both sides are affirming something this morning. Let's start with the church. What is the church affirming about these people that are joining this morning in an official capacity? Now, some of you will remember in the fall, we did a series on the church, four weeks, called Kingdom Outpost. And the idea in that whole series that I tried to paint, and I think it's a biblical idea, is that this local assembly is an outpost of God's kingdom. I mean, one of the major themes biblically, particularly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even in Acts, in the Gospels, is that Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom. And certainly it's not fully here yet. Sin has not been eradicated. We aren't with Christ. But it's breaking into the current world, and we anticipate when it will be here fully in the future. But at this point in salvation history, God's kingdom is growing and advancing through little outposts of his kingdom, which this local church would be one of those outposts. Think of it like an embassy. We are here as an embassy of Christ's kingdom. We are here to represent the king. That's what we do. That's what you do in your job place. That's what I do. That's what we all do together. We, through our corporate life, through our individual lives, we represent the king and we bring the culture of our homeland, our heavenly home to the earth now. And that culture is love and the gospel and speaking of Christ. Now, one of the responsibilities of an embassy is to recognize passports or to give out passports, isn't it? I mean, if you were in Kenya... I had, a, I had a coffee with a missionary this week who was in Tanzania for 11 years. And it was exciting to hear about his kind of new ministry that's happening. But if you were in Tanzania or Kenya or somewhere in Africa and your passport expired while you were there, you would go to the American embassy to get a new passport. Now, when you do that, when you go to the embassy, the embassy doesn't make you an American citizen, do they? They don't bestow citizenship upon you in that moment. Well, what do they do? They recognize, they affirm that you are already a citizen of America. And then you act like it. You get a passport, right? They recognize and affirm your citizenship. Well, it's the same thing with the church. The church certainly doesn't give heavenly citizenship to anyone. I mean, someone can't walk in this morning and the elders get together and say, we'd like that person to go to heaven. And so we're going to give them citizenship. That's not how it works. But one of our responsibilities as a church body is to affirm and to say, yes, this person gives credible testimony to faith. And we believe that they're a citizen of the kingdom. And now they're going to come and they're going to join with us in advancing the cause of the kingdom. And so we've officially affirmed that through something like membership. If that's fuzzy, let me, let me show you a passage where this is demonstrated. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. 
And we're going to start in verse 15. Now, some of you are going to recognize this passage right away as dealing with the topic of church discipline. And I don't want to get into all the details of what church discipline involves this morning, but I do want to show you something from this passage. So what happens here is a brother or a sister, a fellow believer, is caught in sin. And so the church is responsible for that. We'll talk about that in a couple minutes. But look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or more or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The goal here is to have this person see their sin, to turn from their sin. And to come back into fellowship with the church and to repent of their sin and put it aside. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, who gets involved now? Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The church ultimately gets involved in this. It's publicly told to the church after pursuit and long-suffering and patience and grace. And the reason for this is you don't want a believer going after sin. That's not good for them. It's not good for the body. But look at the affirmation that is made in verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The church is to treat this person like an unbeliever so that they see the seriousness of their sin. Now, the church doesn't make this person an unbeliever. They can't figure out and conjure up some official declaration where this person is an unbeliever and now their name is removed from the Lamb's Book of Life. It doesn't work like that. But they are to make a functional affirmation or denial of citizenship and say, we don't think, based on how you're acting, that you are a believer. That's the church's responsibility. And on the flip side of that, the church is responsible to make a functional affirmation of citizenship. That's what we're here for. And so these folks have come to the church today for membership because they want the church to affirm their citizenship in an official way. And again, it doesn't actually grant them citizenship. It's just a, a, like a passport. And they're making a formal commitment to this kingdom outpost to say, listen, we're going to join with this outpost. We're going to serve with this outpost. We want to work together with the body here formally to advance the faith. And that brings us to our second reason that they're joining this morning. There's an affirmation from both sides, and then there's an association. It's a formal association with this church body. These folks want to associate with this body in an official way because of the way the New Testament talks about the church and life in Christ. But what do I mean by that? Well, over and over again, the New Testament describes the church as a place of community with one another, doesn't it? You can't read far in any of the epistles without seeing life-on-life relationships, closeness, intimacy spiritually with one another, all these commands to live out the Christian life. All of that happens within the church body. That's how the New Testament describes the church. You can't live the Christian life without the church body, without another group, with a group of believers in relationship with one another. It's impossible. Look at some passages with me. If you want to turn there, that's fine. Romans chapter 12. I'll read you some of these passages. Romans 12. 
The commands here are to live out your faith in community with other believers. Romans 12, let's, I mean, we could read almost this whole passage, but let's start in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I mean, you see that the way he describes it there is we're one body in Christ. We're joined to Christ. And because of that, we're members of one another. We need one another in this experience of the Christian life. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. This body needs you to use your gifts. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And he goes on and on and continues to talk about relationships within the church body. Um, I have several more passages here, uh, but I'll only read one more and then uh, reference the other one. But Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. Short passage. Look at verse 12. He talks about, in verses 1 to 11, the reality of your salvation. You've been joined to Christ. You put aside these old ways of living, and then here's what you put on. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. All of those are virtues and character qualities that we exercise with one another. Bearing with one another, verse 13, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, flip back to 1 Corinthians 12. I won't read this whole passage, but I want you to see it so that you can go back to it, maybe at a later time, and read it. 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, the many are one body, so it is with Christ. And then he goes on to talk about what that looks like and how that plays itself out. And it's interesting that 1 Corinthians 13, which everyone knows is the love passage, comes in between 1 Corinthians 12, which talks about ministry in the local church, and 1 Corinthians 14, which talks about ministry in the local church. And I think Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 13 is love expresses itself within ministry in the local church. It's fine for 1 Corinthians 13 to be read at a wedding. It's, it's describing love, but the main type of love it's describing is relationships within the body of Christ and not marital love. That's Paul's aim here, working this out among other believers. Now, in 1 Corinthians, who is Paul writing to? He's writing to a local church. He's telling them, you are one body. You, in this local church at Corinth, you are one body. You live out these commands and obey these principles with those believers who you 
associate with, attend with in this local church body. I'll say it this way, the, the universal church always finds expression in a local church. You work out your relationship to the church within the context of a local church. You can't love everyone in the universal body of Christ. And so you love those that you associate with on a weekly basis within this body. My participation in the universal church is meant to be lived out through my local church. And so that's why these folks are coming for membership, to formally associate with this church in a way that says, I want to, I want to work out these one another commands within the body here and participate with the body here. There are people today who claim to be Christians who reject any sort of need for them to even attend church at all. They think they can stay at home and listen to preaching at home, and that counts as church week in and week out. And the problem with that is that hearing a sermon once or twice a week is not church. It's not living out your faith the way the New Testament describes it. We don't just come to church in order to hear a lecture about the Bible, although that is the centerpiece to our worship time. You associate with the body in order to worship God together, to connect with one another in relationships, and to serve other people within the body, to practice the one another commands, and ultimately to serve the world as a kingdom outpost. So church is more than just hearing preaching. You can't boil it down to that. And these folks this morning are coming and desiring to make a formal public commitment for these goals. I want to worship here, connect here, and serve here for the advancement of the gospel. I want to associate with this body. And then lastly here, accountability. Accountability. The Christian life is a unique thing because we've been saved from sin. We're declared righteous in Christ. And yet, we're not, we haven't put sin away fully yet. That will come when we're glorified when we die or in the presence of Christ. And so between the declaration of our righteousness and the full realization of relationship with Christ in heaven, there's this in-between time here. And so we're all functioning in this in-between moment in our lives. It's a little like a kid who his parents have purchased tickets to Disneyland, Disney World, and he's anticipating that, and he wakes up every morning looking forward to that, but he's not there yet. And he's got to continue to go to school and live his life and function in daily life with that anticipation coming. And that's kind of what it is in the Christian life. We're in this in-between time, between the beginning and the full realization of it. But the Bible makes it clear that every believer will struggle with sin while we wait. We're, we will mess up in this time in-between. We still have the old man at work within us trying to destroy our growth and godliness. That's where we're all at. And so living during that in-between time means that we need one another for accountability. We need help from one another in order to not be overtaken by sin. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We need one another. Matthew 18 talks about that too. It's not unloving 
to point out sin in someone else's life. It's actually the loving thing to do. I'll be honest with you this morning. If I came into church today and I had shaving cream all in my beard in such a place that I could not see it, but it was like hanging there and it looked awful and I couldn't see it, I would, I would really want you to take me aside and say, Nathan, I think you missed something on the way out of the house this morning. That would be the loving and the gracious thing to do. It wouldn't be loving and gracious if everyone was laughing about it throughout the hallways and I ended up here in front of you all and no one said anything to me. I mean, you don't understand what I'm saying. If I go to the doctor with a funny looking spot on my skin, I don't want the doctor to assure me that everything is fine without looking at that spot and taking account of it. Is it going to be a little bit painful and annoying to have a biopsy taken? Yeah, probably. Will it be uncomfortable if it's cancer? Yeah. Would I rather it not be cancer? Of course. But what's worse, knowing you have cancer and catching it early enough to be able to deal with it or ignoring it and letting it spread? That's the heart behind these commands in Galatians and Matthew. It's not unloving. It's actually the loving thing to do. And that's why the church body is here. We need to keep one another accountable to God's word. It so often is the most difficult thing for me to recognize my sin, but it's far easier for someone else to see it. It really is like the shaving cream in my beard. Other people can see my pride. They can see my arrogance way before I can see it. And so that's what we need one another for. And that brings me to a passage that I want to show you in Hebrews chapter 13. Flip over there, Hebrews 13. I want to show you this one passage here. And about our need to submit to one another and to place ourselves under the accountability of the elders and of one another. Let me read Hebrews 13, 17. And then I'll talk about it for a second. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That description is exactly what I just talked about. Keeping watch over your souls, caring for one another. And the leaders have a special calling to do that, specific to their task, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, this is a scary passage for me to read out loud because, (laughs) for obvious reasons, Many pastors, some pastors have misunderstood this and misused this text. They take this text to mean there is a significant amount of pastoral authority that bleeds over into areas that the Bible does not address. And that's not what this passage is saying. It's not calling for complete and total obedience in every area to the leadership of the church. The only authority that I have or that the elders have in anyone's life is the word of God. That's it. That's where it ends. That's where it stands. My task, the other elders' task here is to faithfully understand God's word, preach it, teach it, and apply it to people's lives so they can live it out. That's our task. That's our goal. And the folks coming for formal membership this morning are saying, as you faithfully preach and teach God's word, which we think happens here, we want to submit to follow the implications of that in our lives. 
And when we stray from what God's word says, we want you and the church body to come after us. Because we might not be thinking right in the moment. Sin makes us stupid. It perverts our thinking. And so we want to place ourselves formally under your care so that if we stray, man, you get on your horse and you come after us. I want you to do that for me. And I hope you want that for one another. And I love how this passage phrases it, right? It's scary up front, but then look at the end of this. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Look at this, for that would be of no advantage to you. And I think the reverse of this is also true. You are a beneficiary when you're held accountable by the leaders and by the church body. It's to your advantage to allow the church leaders to explain God's word, apply it, and then you respond in obedience to God's word. You receive the benefit of that. So what does that have to do with these people formally joining? I think they're saying we want to follow God's word as it is faithfully taught here by the leadership. And if we ever go astray, seek us out, hold us accountable. And that's true for the body here as well. So that's a lot to digest this morning, right? On baptism, on membership, it's a lot happening here. But I talk about these things because we have a lot to rejoice in here at WBC. And we had two people baptized, testifying to the reality of Christ's work in their lives. Our church body is committed to God's word and committed to one another. And these folks that are coming formally for membership are saying, I want to be a part of that in a significant way. And so we rejoice in God's work among us in the application of his word to our lives. That's really what we're all after, isn't it? (laughs) We want to grow in the faith. We want to become more like Jesus. And this church is here to make disciples, to see them baptized, and then to see other people grow, to see one another grow in Christlikeness. That's what we're doing this morning, and that's why we talk about these things. So I pray that that's been an encouragement to you and... If you walk away from this morning with anything, walk away with the reality that God's at work here. Maybe not in the flashiest way as possible, but man, he is at work changing people's lives, changing hearts, and moving among us for maturity and Christ-likeness. And that's what we want. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you do work, Lord. It's not always in the parting of the Red Sea in these dramatic ways. But it is in the consistent growth in Christlikeness. It is in seeing new believers baptized and publicly professing to Christ and symbolizing the reality of our union with you. And so I pray that each of us today would walk away from this with things to chew on regarding our own faith, our own union with you, and that you would use this time to shape us and form us into disciples of Christ who reach out into our community and bring the culture of heaven to this area. Thank you for your love and your faithfulness to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.